to 2 Kings chapter 13, 2 Kings chapter 13. It's a great study tonight. On, it's, it's, it deals with a miracle at Elisha's tomb. A miracle at Elisha's tomb. But let's begin in chapter 13 with verses 1 through 9. And it begins, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he entered uh, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all of their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so, they, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. So the focus now in chapter 13 focuses from Judah to Israel and to the reign of Jehu's son, Jehoahaz. Jehu had chosen his son because his father had done the same thing. The name Jehoahaz means the Lord has grasped. 200 years later, another Jehoahaz would become king of of Judah following the death of his father, the godly Josiah. Jehoahaz would rather worship the golden calves than the true and living God. But when he found himself in trouble, like many people do, He turned to the Lord for help. Now, you call this emergency faith. You know, when we get in a jam and, you know, we haven't really considered God or cared about God, but we get in a mess. Guess what? Uh, He's the first one we go to. The people of Israel shouldn't have been surprised when the Lord brought the Syrians against them. Because the people knew the conditions of the covenant that God made with them, even before they entered the land of Canaan. It said if they obeyed him, he would give them victory over their enemies. But if they disobeyed him, he'd allow them to be defeated by their enemies. People still believe Satan's lie today. Oh, you will surely not die. In other words, go ahead. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you like. It doesn't matter. There's no serious consequences to your sin. But whether God punishes or he blesses, God is always true to his word. Now, the situation in Israel became so totally hopeless that Jehoahaz cried out to God for help. Just the way Israel had done before uh, during the time of the judges. And even though Jehoahaz didn't totally follow the Lord based on verse 6, God graciously heard his heartfelt cry for help. And God promised to send a deliverer, but only 
after Jehoahaz was dead and gone. Hazael died, and his son and successor Ben-Hadad was a weaker ruler. So it was possible for somebody to break the stronghold that Syria had on Israel. In his long-suffering, mercy, God often deals patiently with people and he blesses them even though they're failures. The statement in verse 5 that Israel dwelt in their tents, it means they lived in peace and they didn't have to look for refuge in the walled cities. Now you would think that the promised blessing of God would have changed Jehoahaz. But it didn't, you see, because he didn't remove the idols from the land. And he didn't encourage the people to return to the Lord. Now the wooden image that's mentioned in these verses refers to the Canaanite goddess Asherah. And the image itself was a sacred tree or a pole that was possibly thought to be some sexually oriented symbol of the fertility of Canaan. Again, emergency faith is hardly ever deep faith or lasting faith. Because a lot of people, once they, they, they reach out for this emergency faith and they see that there's a little bit of hope of deliverance, they kind, their, their pain kind of eases up and they, they kind of forget about the Lord. And it's like, okay, Lord, I don't need you. Things are looking good now. And they go back to their old ways until the next emergency. The Syrians left Jehoahaz with a poor excuse of an army that was more of an embarrassment than it was a strength and an encouragement. But you know what? God still promised that if his people trusted him and they obeyed his word, their enemies would run from them. But again, emergency faith is not dependable. How many times have you heard a person in the hospital say, you know, if God heals me, man, I'll be the best Christian you ever saw. Oh, I'll, I'll go back to church and I'll, I'll, I'll live right. God heals them. He allows them to go home. You never see them again in church. You've all heard about deathbed conversions, foxhole conversions, jailhouse conversions. Now, many of them are real and they're lasting. But how many times, here's the thing, how many times can you call on the Lord when you're in trouble and then ignore him when he answers your call? You see, people who depend upon emergency faith better listen to the warnings of Proverbs 1, 24 through 33 and Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Listen, Proverbs 1, 24 through, 36, uh, through 33 reads like this. God says, because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. He said, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Here's why. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and they despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon don't take it for granted that because god heard your prayer 
and he helped you that you're automatically going to heaven. Listen to verses 10 through 19 now. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hand. And he said, Open the, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and he stopped. And the man of God was angry with him. And he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. This is ignorant faith. The most important thing about Jehoash was that he had enough sense to go see Elijah and to ask Elijah for a blessing. Fifty years have gone by since we last heard about Elisha back in chapter 9. From chapter 9 to chapter 13, 50 years have elapsed. He's now an old man and Elisha is dying when he was visited by Joash, Jehu's grandson. Elisha is at least 80 to over 100 years old here. He's still in ministry. What a rebuke to those who want to retire early and, you know, and, and take it ease. When Joash, king of Israel, also Jehoahash, just a different variation in the spelling, when he came to visit the dying Elisha, Elisha gave the king of Israel a real challenge in fighting against and defeating the Syrians. Joash is still the king of Judah. But again, th but this is a different Joash. For three years, these two Joashes reigned at the same time, one in Israel and one in Judah. It was a challenge that the king of Israel responded to very poorly. Look at verse 14 again. It says, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. King Joash had a great respect for Elisha. And before Elisha dies, he's honored by this king's visit. And it was evidenced by his coming to visit Elisha. Now, it was a common thing in the east at this time in history for a king to personally visit a prophet. Now, Elisha's calling didn't always have the respect of Israel's king. Some respected Elisha, some showed little or no respect for him. Some even tried to kill him. But you see, those men and women who are true to God, they will find out real quick that the respect that they get from people, it differs a lot. And at best, man, it is fickle. 
I mean, people might applaud you one day and attack you the, the next. That's why this psalmist wrote in Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes or leaders. You see, even though relying on other people, you know, it's part of living. Our ultimate trust and confidence can only be placed in the Lord God. So you see, if you're a servant of God, don't put a lot of stock in people's attitude towards you, but towards what you're doing for God. The only thing you need to be concerned about is what God thinks about your work. Much like Jesus, remember one minute they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, as he rode into Jerusalem. The next thing they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. One minute they're praising Jesus, they turn around and then they want to hang you. Jesus said in Matthew eleven sixteen 16 through 19, what can I compare this generation to? He said, they're like children playing a game in the public square. He says, they complained to their friends. We played wedding songs, but you wouldn't dance. So then we played funeral songs, but you wouldn't mourn. For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say, oh, he's possessed by a demon. And the Son of Man, on the other hand, he ate and he drank, and you say, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other, other sinners. It's the fickleness of people. You see, the way people react to your ministry compared to how God reacts is seldom a reliable opinion of the value of the work and the faithfulness of the worker. I love Paul's attitude. When it came to Paul's faithfulness, hey, he wasn't bothered by a lot of people, what they thought. He wasn't, he wasn't bothered much by what people thought or their comments or their criticism. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3-5. He says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself. He says, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me in this is the Lord. In other words, he says, I don't, I don't know of anything I've, bad I've done. I don't, he says, but I don't even judge myself by that standard. He says, I let the Lord judge me. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. That's where it counts. The praise that comes from God. Paul said here, man, it doesn't matter to me that much what you or anybody else think about me. He says, I don't even trust my own judgment at this point. He says, my conscience is clear, but you know what? That's not what matters. It's the Lord himself who will examine me and he'll be the one to decide. So you see, we need to be careful when we jump to conclusions before the Lord returns as to whether or not somebody is faithful. When the Lord comes, he will bring our deepest secrets to light. He will expose them. He will reveal our personal motives for what we do. And then God is going to give to everybody whatever praise they're due. Joash here, weeping over Elisha's face in verse 14, it was a sign of respect. Now, we, we all should live in such a way that when we're gone, people will be, will, they'll mourn. The world will be a, a, a less better place. But too many people live in such a way that when they die, it becomes more rejoicing than mourning. And, and Joash's comments were a sign of respect, like I said in verse 14, when he said, Father, oh, my father. This was used in biblical times as a respectful title for one's teacher, master, and elder. Elisha was Joash's elder, his teacher and his master when it came to spiritual things. 
And then in verse 14, the phrase chariots of Israel and their horsemen, it is a military phrase and it describes the protection and security of a nation. Using it to describe Elisha says that he was the real protection and the real security of Israel. And he was. Not a lot of people recognize that one of the greatest protections that a nation can have is to have godly men among them in their midst. After Joash wept over Elisha and he made his respectful statement, Elisha revealed to him that Israel would get a victory over the Syrians. And then in verses 15 through 17, Elisha challenged Joash. And the challenge was made through some instructive, symbolic actions using a bow and an arrow. The revelation was encouraging because it told Joash that the tide was going to turn in Israel's favor in relation to, to Syria. You see, for many years, Syria had waged war on Israel. And Syria had left them in bad shape. And all they had, as it's mentioned in verse 7, well, all we have is 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. But Elisha tells them, things are going to change. They're going to turn around for you. Elisha tells Joash that he's going to have a great victory over Syria at the city of Aphek, according to verse 17. When Syria attacked Israel, Syria and Syria was defeated, just like Elisha prophesied. You see, whenever God's men were treated with the proper respect, God blessed the nation. And if Israel would have only respected the men of God, they would have saved themselves a whole lot of trouble. And the same as goes for us today. A church will not prosper much if it doesn't respect its leaders that God has appointed. Joash was told to shoot an arrow towards the east. This was generally the direction of Syria, and it was a declaration of war against Syria. When Elisha put his hands on Joash's hands there in verse 16, it was symbolic and it was important. It was a reminder that it was God who would give the victory. Elisha was acting in God's place by putting his hands over Joash's hands. Joash needed this reminder, just like we do many times, that God's hand is upon us. Elisha reminded Joash where the victory comes from and where he should continue to look for it. I mean, it was a great message on Elisha's behalf. And if, jo if Joash would have listened to it completely, Joash would, have, uh, um, Joash would have experienced even greater victories over Syria than he did. Elisha tells Joash, I want you to hit the ground with the arrows there in verse 18. So Joash grabs the arrows and he hits the grounds three times. Boom, boom. And then he stopped. And then Elisha got angry at him. He said, if you would have hit the ground five or six times, he says, you would have destroyed Syria. You see, when he stopped with the third arrow, it showed a weakness in his character. It showed Joash's half-hearted obedience to Elisha's instructions, and it showed his weak faith. It showed his lack of perseverance, and it showed a tendency to be satisfied with partial results. Not going all the way with God to stop short of the ultimate goal of trying. You see, Joash lacked dedication here. He didn't have the zeal that he lacked zeal in fighting evil. That's why he needed to be rebuked. And there are a lot of people, way too many people like Joash in their fight against evil. They're happy to settle for just a few victories over the enemy. 
They're not interested in opposing and fighting evil until it is totally wiped out. They don't stand firm in their homes. They don't stand firm in their church. Why? They don't want to take a hard line stand against evil. So you see, evil goes free without any restraints. You see, we'd rather talk about nice things. We'd rather talk about love and patience and peace and tolerance. We don't want to get too carried away. We don't want to get too extreme, extreme, which is just an appearance of godliness to put down serious opposition to evil. That's what's happening in our world today. We will never conquer the evils of our day or of our flesh with weak attitudes and excuses and compromises when it comes to fighting sin. And we need to be reminded often that there is a great danger in half-hearted efforts and attitudes when we fight against sin and evil. The man or the woman who doesn't fight sin with all of their strength is headed for trouble. And if you're soft, when you in dealing with sin, you will be overcome by it. Remember, Paul said a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Syria was a brutal and cruel enemy. And Joash needed to get more zealous if he was going to totally destroy this enemy. Verse 25 tells us he defeated Syria only three times. But that wasn't enough to put them down permanently. It's the same with sin. It is a continual ongoing battle until sin is wiped out. That's why Elisha was angry in verse 19. This wasn't a lightweight, mild-mannered scolding that Elisha gave Joash here. Many Christians today would be upset if Elisha showed this anger in their church in his rebuke. Today, people would condemn him for speaking offensive and disrespectfully. Where's the love, Elisha? If a minister gets upset over the lack of faith or commitment and conviction of his people and he gave them a scolding, he'd be criticized by the people for losing his temper. For being mad or being mean. For not being loving, patient and compassionate. People would even leave the church. I know I've seen it over the years. But that's not where the loss is. The loss is the people's conviction and faith and commitment to sin. Or, or, yeah, against sin. The preacher hasn't lost anything. Righteous indignation is not a loss. It is not wrong. It is holy. But you see, the people who have little zeal for righteousness and who don't take fighting sin and evil very serious, they're the ones who have a problem with loss. We need more men and women today like Elisha who have righteous anger over those people who are soft on sin and evil. Elisha's response, Elisha's anger is the only right response to have hardiness against evil and sin. Verses 20 and 21. Then Elisha died and they buried him and the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. I love this story. I, I, I you know, said then I was picturing this story. You know, in the spring of the year, it says here, which was the beginning of the Jewish year, which was about April. It was when the new year started for the Jews. 
during that time, it was a common thing for robbers to go through the land and raid the land. Because you see, it was the time when certain winter crops would be ready for harvesting. So what the robbers would do, they would go through the land looking for these crops and they were ready and raring to go to steal the fruits of these people's harvest. But while they were burying somebody, some of the pallbearers saw some of these robbers off in the distance. And they, were, they, 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 they got scared. And out of fear, they opened the closest tomb to them, which happened to be Elisha's. And, and I picture him not carefully laying the body. I just carefully just dumping it down there and them taking off. And this is the next thing, you know, the dead body jumps back up out of the grave. I mean, can you, can you just picture that? That body came back to life. The man stood on his feet. And I don't know whether he just stood there looking around or, you know, he took off running. But nonetheless, he, he came back to life. Now, there are some powerful lessons in this scene. First of all, it is a lesson about holiness. When that dead man touched the holiness of Elisha, he came to life. Just like when a, a dead man or woman in their trespasses and sin, Paul said, who are dead in their trespasses, they touch the holiness of Jesus Christ, they come to life. Their life changes. This was a reminder to the Israelites that God worked through what Elisha represented, honor for Jehovah God. And where God is honored and His commands are obeyed, there will be great blessing. And for Israel... To receive God's deliverance, they had to honor what Elisha represented. They must honor holiness. Our nation, our churches, our homes, our marriages, our lives need this lesson tonight. If we want God to help us, we have to honor Him. God works through purity, not uncleanness. God works through obedience, not disobedience. And if we're in a bad situation tonight and we need God's deliverance, we will find the way to deliverance in the message of this miracle in Elisha's grave. The second thing this miracle shows us, it tells us that God recycles ministries. Even in the grave, Elisha continues to minister. Elisha continues to have an active influence and recycling is popular in big business today, but God was in the recycling business way before we ever thought of it. And you know what? God continues to use people long after they've been buried. Matthew Henry, Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Tozer, G. Campbell Morgan, Morgan, and the list goes on. Pastor Chuck Smith. Another lesson here in this picture in the tomb is the restoration of Israel. It was prophesied over and over again early in Scripture that Israel would be restored. We saw it happen. I believe it was March 14th, 1948. Israel became a nation again. It came when they were forsaken and when there was a lot of opposition to their survival. The next lesson is concerning the redemption of sinners. We see the gospel in this miracle in four ways. We see the need of redemption. The dead man thrown into Elisha's tomb pictures the sinner's need for redemption in that he was dead, he was hopeless, and forsaken. He was dead, just as Scripture describes the sinner in Ephesians 2.21. I'm sorry, 2.1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
He was helpless. This dead man was helpless. He couldn't do anything about his condition. In the same way, the sinner is helpless and he can't save himself. Only Jesus can do that for him through a changed heart. And the man, like the sinner, was forsaken. His friends put him in Elisha's grave, intending to leave him there as they ran away. Now, isn't this what the sinner experiences as well? After evil has ripped the sinner off and Satan has used him up, Satan deserts him and he's left to rot in his grave. Like the prodigal son, after he spent all he had on immoral living, he was deserted by his so-called friends. The next picture we see here is the means of redemption. Death was the way to life. Elisha was dead, yet through his death, he was the way to life. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he was the one who gave us life through his death. This definitely reminds us of salvation in this part of the miracle. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul says in Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If Jesus Christ hadn't gone to the cross and died, we would have no way of being saved tonight. The third gospel we pick, picture we see here in this picture at the gravesite is the opposition to redemption. As soon as that man came to life, he was facing the Moabite robbers. What a perfect picture of salvation. You see, when a person gets saved, he finds out he's soon facing the enemy. He won't be saved for very long before he comes acquainted with the battle. Galatians 4.29, Paul says, He who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. The fourth gospel picture we see at the tomb is the evidence of redemption. When the man was restored to life, it says in verse 21, he stood up on his feet. You see, he was carried by others to the grave. He couldn't walk. He couldn't stand. He couldn't do anything for himself. But once he got that new life, once new life came, it was a different story. And so it is with those who are redeemed, who are saved. Sin lowers a man. Sin does not. Uh, sin brings you down. Sin lowers a man. Sin brings you down. It makes you fall. It doesn't raise up a man. But you see, salvation, salvation makes a person upright. And you know what? You don't even have to be upright to be saved. Jesus says, hey, it doesn't matter what condition you're in. You can become upright as a result of salvation. And when somebody gets saved, there will be evidence. And one of the best evidences is an upright life. And I think one of the neatest pictures to me of this, when a man is restored in Christ, is in Luke chapter 8, when the, the, the demon-possessed man in the gatherings was set free by Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you. When Jesus stepped out on the land, he was coming over to on the uh, stepping out on the country of the gatherings. It says he was met by a man from the city who had demons for notice a long time. It says he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. It says that the demon often seized him and he had to be kept under guard. Bound with chains and shackles, but he broke those bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. But after Jesus cast out the demons. It says that the people went to see what had happened and they came to Jesus. And this I love this. This is they found the man. 
whom the demons had departed, they found him sitting at the feet of Jesus. He was running in the wilderness. He had no rest because of the demons. Now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it says he's clothed. He's no longer naked. He's clothed. And he's in his right mind. And the man from where the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. He wanted to be with Jesus after that. He was set free. He was in his right mind. He was clothed. He was at rest. He wanted to be with Jesus. Evidences of a true birth. Evidence of salvation. So it's understandable if somebody wonders if, if, if you profess to be saved and you're really saved because there doesn't seem to be any upright behavior. No, you're not standing upright. You don't show the fruits of salvation. You don't show the evidence of godliness, but instead the fruits of ungodliness. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. Anybody, anybody who effectively touches Elisha's life through the word of God will, like the dead man in our story, be revived and they will stand up on their feet for God. There's no doubts. Jesus makes a changed life. Verses 22 through 25. And Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them had compassion on them, and he regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Haziel, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. The Syrians were determined to destroy Israel. They were determined to make it a part of their empire, but the Lord had other plans. His covenant with the forefathers, with the patriarchs that are mentioned here, and his grace towards their descendants moved the Lord to look upon Israel's affliction and to rescue them from their enemies. It was only when the people so obviously sinned that they blasphemed the name of the Lord and defiled his land that God allowed Israel and Judah to be defeated and taken into bondage. In 722, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and in 586, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. The people of Judah returned to their land after 70 years of captivity was over, but the people of Israel were blended into the Assyrian Empire. King Jehoash won three great victories against the Syrians. And this was enough to enable him to recover towns that Haziel and Ben-Hadad had taken from Israel. And then King Jeroboam II recovered the rest of the land. The Lord enabled Jehoash to increase his military power and overcome the Syrians that were led by Hadad III. God's promise came true and God's people were saved. During the reigns of Jehoash and Jeroboam, the second, the kingdom of Israel reached its peak. There was prosperity in the land. But we, even with all of its achievements and all of its wealth, it was still a land that was filled with idolatry and a lot of sin. During the reign of Jeroboam II, the prophets Hosea and Amos ministered to the people of Israel. And when you read their books, you see the true conditions of the land. It's like, the, it's like the, the, the story in John chapter 5 and verses 5 through 9. 
They said that it talked about us that certain man who had an infirmity for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there. He knew he had been in that condition a long time. And he said to him, to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man said to the Lord, I don't have anybody to put me into the pool of water when it's stirred up. He started making excuses. He said, when I'm coming, coming down, another steps down before me. And Jesus said, rise up, take your bed and walk. And he says, immediately the man was made well. He took his bed and he's walked when he walked. Here's the thing. When things go wrong in life, Jesus' only concern is with recovery. He doesn't hold hearings. He doesn't interrogate you. He doesn't ask you why and how did you get into this situation. He doesn't try to put blame on you. He simply asks, do you want to be made well? You see, Jesus will not help you against your will. And as much as Jesus, as, as you know, God was doing for the land of Israel, and he wanted to give them the complete victory, they still the land was still filled with idolatry and a lot of sin. Another, again, you're not going to, God is not going to help you unless, again, against your will. We have to want the Lord to help us. We have to yield and, and humble ourselves to him and say, Lord, I need your help. I need you in my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful lesson, Lord of Elisha's death, or Elisha's burial, Lord, and the dead man tossed into his tomb, God. Lord, we need a new life, God. We need Christ and his holiness in our life, Father. Lord, I pray that, Lord, the Holy Spirit has brought this lesson to light, to reality in our hearts, God. That God doesn't bless disobedience. He lets go. And he wants to help those who want to be helped. He wants to set free those who want to be set free. He will never force you to do anything you don't want to do. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. For whatever reason. We pray that God's spirit has spoken to you tonight. And you've heard his word. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then as we worship. You get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. When the song's over we'll pray together. A simple prayer of faith.